Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial worm week by week, arc by arc. My name is Matt Freeman, your host and Brockton Bay mayoral candidate, and I'm joined as always by my very own Sean Spicer in training, Scott Daly. Scott, how's it going? I'm doing really good, Matt. And yes, as you said, this is the podcast where you, a worm expert, guide me, a first-time reader, through the shattered remnants of Brockton Bay as I inspect, interpret, and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going. This week, we are tackling part one of Arc 15, Colony, which covers chapters 15.1 through 15.2, including two uh, very, very depressing interludes. Um, this story is all about the aftermath of the devastation caused by the Slaughterhouse Nine and uh, the insane escalation of force that was used in response to them. Um, I think we see Taylor and her team take stock of who they are and what they learned. Um, rebuilding is kind of a central theme of the arc, rebuilding buildings, uh, rebuilding relationships, rebuilding friendships. And we, we see Taylor kind of struggle to rebuild all these things um, as she uh, centers focus on her plan for rescuing Dinah. Um, almost as if like this is all about Taylor's colony, Matt. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's fair. Um, I think that's not I think that's not a stretch actually. I mean, it's, it's she she's establishing herself in a different way. Yeah. So so the first half of this arc it, it is it is very interesting because uh, in in this case the the plot ball doesn't move forward all that much in terms of Taylor's story, but we get some very juicy interludes as you said. Um, there's, there's plenty of interesting stuff that happens with Taylor, but I think we're going to spend a lot of time on the interludes this week. Yeah. I was, I was really worried that we weren't going to have a lot of talk, lot to talk about, um, when reading the Taylor specific chapters. And then as we sat down to really dive into the meat of the interludes, I think we realized just how much is there, like how Mm -hmm. much, how much stuff to discuss and play with. Um, so yeah, we ended up, um, with just as many pages as we always have. So (laughs) get ready for another two hour and something minute episode. But, um, I'm really excited about this one. I think it's going to be really good. I think we cut off at an interesting point. Um, we cut off in 15.5 at a pretty big cliffhanger, um, and we'll have to find out next week uh, what actually happens. But I guess we should just uh, jump into it, huh? Yeah. Yeah, pr- pretty much. I think we're we're not going to do comments and questions this week because we're time traveling currently and are currently soliciting questions for the mailbag. Uh, Scott, can you explain what I mean by that? <laughs> yeah, um, we are. This is this is part of my um, recording in advance because I, I'm out of town for this month. So technically, we haven't recorded the mailbag episode yet. <laughs> um, so we're doing this one before we record the mailbag episode. So you guys will have already heard all our mailbag stuff. Uh, but uh, we we don't know how that episode is going to turn out. So I hope you liked it. Yeah. <laughs> but so yeah. Right here, go back and listen to the mailbag and then come back here and then you'll be, we'll be good. <laughs> right, right. But um, yeah, so we're not going to do discussion questions or anything this week because obviously this is recorded well before all that. So we can't uh, respond to any of your comments to our questions. I hope we didn't upset you guys, but um, uh, we will be back to our regular schedule at the end of the month. We've got uh, this episode and then um, episode 15, uh, the second half of ARC 15, which will also be pre-recorded. Um, we're going to get off of, of this call and then start reading and do that recording before I leave. So both those episodes, um, we will have no commentary from you guys. We're sorry, but we, uh, we had to record these in advance. We, at least we have episodes for you while I'm gone. So that's, that's a good thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's worth it. Yeah. So let's jump into it. Let's do it. Okay. All right. We open 15.1. Uh, Rachel has brought Bentley by, uh, by Taylor's territory with some of her minions to help tear down a building in, uh, that was uh, ruined by fire. 
Uh, Rachel says that Skidder now owes her, and Skidder offers lunch as payment. Skidder muses about how difficult her relationship with Rachel has been, uh, but that it seems to be going in the right direction. Yeah, uh, this is, again, we talk a lot about 15 1, 14-1, 13-1. These are all set-up chapters. Um, this whole, like we said, this whole section is really set-up, but this specifically is, we're going to be talking about relationships here. Um, we start this off like there's a there's a really quick misdirect at the beginning of this chapter where we think bentley is attacking taylor and there's this real moment of shit what did taylor do now (laughs) um but this quickly dissipates and we see that interaction as kind of like a little mini microcosm of of the entire relationship where there's miscommunication there there's threats of physical violence and then just a a dash of actual compassion and friendship lurking underneath it all um Mm -hmm. i I thought this was really nicely done I, i liked this little bit of misdirection at the beginning it worked yeah, me too. It, it's interesting. There's a couple times in this chapter where where you pointed out the misdirection, and because like because I I know the arc of things, I was like, oh yeah, I forgot that was supposed to be misdirection because I just <laughs> parsed it. I just parsed it, you know, correctly the first time through. But uh, yeah, good yeah. catch. And and I liked there's there's this little uh, bit of uh, prose I wanted to pull out here because um taylor has a kind of a realization that bentley is just a dog beneath the three thousand ish pounds of muscle and the exterior of tangled muscle and bone he was still just a dopey dog who adored his master bitch had given him what he'd been yearning for since he was abandoned or abused in the past life she'd offered him the affection and compassion companionship he'd been wanting for years um and this is a very thinly veiled metaphor for both Rachel and Taylor. This works for either of them and both of them simultaneously. And I thought that's really, really nice touch, Wildbow. Well done. Yeah, yeah that, that's interesting because it, it, it sort of it makes sense how it applies to Rachel. But it also it, it's almost like Taylor's projecting in terms of uh, uh, her own feelings. Yeah, that yeah, makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rachel's group heads into Skitter's lair. Rachel heads off to chain Bentley up by the beach so, so that he doesn't shed blood and giblets everywhere when he shrinks back to normal, leaving Skidder to chat with her minions. We finally get a description of uh, Barker and Biter, Rachel's two parahuman henchmen. Yeah, and this is, I think, another in kind of a long line of our uh, two character power themes working in tandem. We had Assault and Battery. Uh, I guess Lee and Uber kind of count, but, mm-hmm. uh, but we, we have these guys. Um, and I really enjoyed these guys, the biter being the big, strong guy, Barker being literally (laughs) the all bark and no bite person. Um, I like the touch that he's like a couple inches shorter than Taylor. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think this is really good. And, and they're very like classically designed henchmen. Um, and I I think this is, uh, this is like a a wild bow is good at this. We've seen these kind of goofy, um, kind of not great at their job henchmen before, um, Leet and Uber, which I, I mentioned them, but like where where the hell did those guys go? By the way, they just yeah. kind of disappeared. But um, I think it's just really cool to see um, this this new and interesting way to use these powers and and kind of call a this is kind of a call to like a classic type of comic book character. These two, um, they feel mm-hmm. very reminiscent of that kind of thing. And and it, we're we're deconstructing all this stuff, but every once in a while we have to call back to it. And I like that. Yeah, yeah, I, that, that all makes sense. Um, yeah, so Biter immediately asks uh, how it is that Taylor is able to get along with Rachel, and she tries to give them good advice uh, without tipping her hand too much about Rachel's true nature. Yeah, and you feel that sense of frustration, right? None of them understand her. They don't get her. They don't know how to deal with her. They don't know how to work for her, and they can't even really be around her without like screwing up. 
And I think this is, serves as a reminder for us just how hard work Rachel is. Um, we, we see Taylor every time she has to consider every single word, every action, like even, even a smile is misinterpreted. So we're reminded being around Rachel is really tough. And I think that's all the more reason why like Taylor's willingness to go through the motions to do that is really commendable. Um, I, yeah. I really love that. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, th- th- that's a very interesting thing to point out because it's not something that Taylor thinks about. She's, she's never like, I, I need, I need to reach out to Taylor because it's the right thing to do or whatever. Or, sorry, Rachel, because it's the right thing to do. She's just like, she just does it, um, without really yeah. analyzing too much why. And, and, uh, it's a very interesting attribute of her character. I agree. Yeah, but there is this this small moment here where she says, maybe it would be easier to just be Rachel's teammate. Maybe mm-hmm. being Rachel's teammate would make my life easier than trying to be Rachel's friend. Um, and she has this very conscious moment of, yeah, that would be easier. Um, but then she says, look, and I quote, it would be abandoning her to a pretty lonely existence. And so she feels like she has to at least try. And like, that's what Rachel needs. She needs people to try. Like she's going to push them away. It's part of her nature, but she needs people that won't give up on her. And there's a lot of that going around in this arc of people mm-hmm. not giving up on each other. And and we're seeing this, this, this team um, kind of like, they're all like shell shocked and dealing with their issues. And we see them, some of them come together in some ways and some of them not and bonds forming between members not just between taylor and members but i think this is establishing like what are we're we're trying to turn this this team into more of like a family and Mm -hmm. i think that's that's really cool yeah that's a great that's a great point that's a great line to to bring out there i'm gonna i'm gonna reuse my my term projection from a minute ago and say that when she says that uh uh you know, this is exactly what Rachel needs. She's projecting again a little bit because this is actually exactly what Taylor needs. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So that's, that's, uh, she does, she, she may not even be aware that that's why she's doing it, but I think that's part of it too. Yeah. I think so, it, uh, it stems yeah. back to her feeling of being bullied. Um, and mm-hmm. then, and that no one was there for her. So I'm going to be, I, when I'm in control of that situation, I will be that person that I wish people were for me. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah. And and the fact that it is kind of subconscious a little bit is all the more important. It's more telling. She's not doing it on purpose. It's just who she is. Yeah. Yeah. I think we mentioned before how we learn more about her when she's when we're catching her kind of unguarded thoughts uh, rather than her complicated justifications. And rationalizations. And I yeah. think we're going to see a little bit more of that as we go through this arc. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So uh, Taylor asks what Barker and Biter's powers are. And uh, Barker uses his to startle Skitter, um, mildly startles her, and she responds with completely proportionate and reasonable force, striking him in the face with a weapon, kicking him down and pinning him with a chair, and then smearing capsaicin bugs all over his airways. <laughs> um, hey, remember when you and I gave Taylor's action against those former ABB members last arc a pass because they were like being total jerks and trying to fuck with children and threaten rape against her minions? Uh-huh. Um, I'm not going to be so lenient to this uh-huh. because this is kind of crazy. I mean, y- you kind of get this. Like, I think she even says this later that like, she feels like she has to show toughness. Like she has to, like her responses cannot be proportional. They have to be over the line in order to show these guys that she's boss. But I think that's more revealing of her own insecurity than it is like reality of the situation. Like she's developed this idea that she has to go over the top 
not not using any evidence of the people she's actually dealing with. It's just like what she thinks she has to do. And it's it's absurd. Like, this is so like this is so ridiculous. Yeah, it's interesting because I kind of went in a circle when I was thinking about this. I was like, man, can you imagine can you imagine Taylor from the first arc doing this? And then, of course, I had the immediate thought, well, yes, actually, because <laughs> in the first arc is when she beats the hell out of out of Rachel. Um, not that not that that wasn't deserved, but it was like a very vicious, just frontal attack. Um, so the, she she's always had this streak in her. Now she just has like more of a reason to kind of cut loose, I think. Right, right. And I think the most telling part of this is a few minutes removed from the scene, we see Charlotte kind of freaked out and uncomfortable about the whole thing. And -hmm. I think Taylor reads it as she's uncomfortable with Barker and who this guy is and what he represents. But my interpretation of this is Charlotte's probably more freaked out by the level of violence. Her boss just like casually committed on this dude who barely crossed her. I mean, as her minion, you got to think like, holy shit, what if I do something wrong? What is going to happen to me? Yeah, right. She does that. And then she's like, yeah, I guess that's why he deserves shit duty. (laughs) You're just like dropping like one liners. Yeah. 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 So so at that point, Rachel returns, um, but doesn't have a problem with what has occurred. Yeah, and in fact, knowing Rachel, I bet like she even gained a little more respect for Taylor um, mm-hmm. in that moment, which I don't know what that says about these two <laughs> characters. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we're being out of line here saying that this is kind of like like uh, an escalation of completely unnecessary. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Taylor strikes up a conversation with one of Rachel's unpowered minions and uh, turns the conversation to the topic of dogs, helping navigate it in a way that doesn't offend Rachel. And this is Taylor, right? Like, one minute she goes absolutely nuts on this guy, and the next, like, she's flipped a switch and she's back to trying to improve Rachel's relationship with these girls, like, trying to foster connection between these two. And and it works here, because this Rachel gives this girl a dog, um, and, and we know Rachel, so we know trusting someone else with one of her dogs is like a huge deal. So on mm-hmm. the one half we have Taylor losing her shit and freaking out on the guy. On the other half we have Taylor helping these people bond and increasing the bond between them. And it's like, like you just don't know what to make of her. And it's like, it's, it's exhausting at times. <laughs> yeah. 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 We're, we're going to see more of, of that note uh, as we go forward. Definitely. Yeah. So she gives Rachel the spider silk costume that she made for her. Uh, Rachel assumes that she wants something in return for it, uh, and Taylor has to convince her that she doesn't. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think our listeners have like started a drinking game around every time I say I love this because mm-hmm. I've I've been hearing some rumbling about it. Well, guess what, <laughs> losers? Drink up because I love this entire conversation. I love the detail of it. Um, I love the, the little bits of detail, like how how appreciative Rachel is. At, while still not really knowing what to do with it. Um, and, and the fact, the little subtle touch that her face mask reminds her of Brutus, like, and, and that like she never in her life had she been given something without the expectation of something in return. Like this, this little quote she gives, which you can interpret darkly if you want to, or not as darkly if you want to, but all the stuff I've gotten, it's been with strings attached used to get gifts from one of my foster dads. Like you could, like you could go dark with that if you wanted yeah. to. And and maybe there's there's support to that reading of the text, but like there's it's just this it's just this really beautiful moment between two friends and like she literally doesn't know what to do and it's it's great. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, yeah, so so then the, the rest of the undersiders arrive uh, gradually because uh, there's actually going to be a meeting here. So it wasn't it wasn't just Rachel stopping by to tear down a building. It was basically Rachel coming by early to help with that before the meeting. Um, they all try on their new costumes and they're sitting around looking at each other. And then we get the passage. Feels like we're different people than we were an hour ago, Imp said, looking around. I considered her words. I appreciate the sentiment, but I think it's more accurate to say we're different people than we were a week ago. Um, which, well, so on the one hand, I really like this exchange, and, and, it's, and it's true, and it's almost like the, the topic sentence of this arc, perhaps. Uh, but on the other hand, it's yet another example of Taylor being just a terribly humorless person. Yeah, I thought about this a lot because I agree that Taylor's almost like annoyingly literal in this moment. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, <laughs> Imp is just making a comment, um, but it, it does align with this idea that the Nine have fundamentally changed everyone. I think everyone's reaction to this is kind of just like silent nods as they all like take in the fact that, yeah, we are different than we were. This has changed us. But I think the thing that is most telling here is that Taylor said this out loud. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think the Taylor we've seen in the past would probably have just internally thought this. Like, like just to herself would have say, we're different, like, but that she shares that thought with the team. I think this is kind of supporting a, a, a subtle change in Taylor um, and, like, uh, her stepping up into a leadership role that we'll see literally being thrust upon her here in a few chapters. Um, but... It also kind of shows those compartments going down a little bit, like Taylor willing to be the one that says, this happened to us. We need to acknowledge that this happened. Um, and that's very different from what we've seen her do in the past. Yeah, just in general, she's she's a lot more open, like open with and forceful with her team. Like maybe it has to do with um, the fact that as we're going to see in this section, she kind of brings everyone into her, her plan. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and And but like maybe I'll, I'll highlight it when we get there, but there's a moment when she, she thinks like people are only uncomfortable around tattletale when they have secrets that they want to keep from her. And, <laughs> and that, 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 you know, that, that's interesting in its own ways. But, but one of them is that it makes you kind of notice that Taylor really doesn't have any secrets from tattletale. Um, and, yeah, you're and, right. I think, I think this is really the first point in her story that the people she's closest with, she's not keeping anything from. Because mm-hmm. um, yeah. I, I, yeah, I can't think of a thing that she's hiding from any of these people right now, and that is very different from how she was operating before. Totally, yeah. So yeah, so speaking of which, uh, this is the point where she officially broaches the subject of getting Dinah free of Coil. Uh, Lisa and Brian are basically on her side already, and Aisha would side with Brian in in this situation. So it's really a debate with Rachel and Alec. Um, Alec turns out to be okay with it because the world's going to end soon anyway. Uh, and, uh, you know, nobody likes to hear that that's his reasoning, obviously. Uh, although later in the conversation, he follows up that like the job of holding territory is less fun than it used to be. And we have established that Alec pursues fun basically. Yeah. This, this whole exchange got me thinking a lot about how the undersiders like consider and use Alec and they do, they kind of dance around him and they ignore the parts of his personality that they don't like. And they like push him towards the, the things that they like him to do. Like 
the, like the, he's bored of his territory. He's he's different to the world ending. This is troubling to us, but he's supporting what we want, so it's fine for now. Um, we've got he, we've got him turned in the direction we want him, so we're okay with his actions as long as it's supporting the things that we care about. Um, and that's very interesting, and I think it says something about how the, the team communicates as a whole. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting. Whenever like Taylor's always kind of eyeing him askance m- mentally which it's funny that, the, that they're like oh and then we'll give you we'll give you shatterbird which is basically one of the more powerful capes that we're aware of <laughs> yeah um yeah so yeah so rachel is already really annoyed with coil for actually forcing her to have minions which she never wanted uh so she's pretty eager to betray him so it's not really a hard sell there either yeah this is a pretty uh good excuse rachel um but i kind of get the feeling that she would have gone with taylor at this point um, whether or not that was a good excuse or not. Um, I, I think she's okay. just with Taylor at this point, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I, I think that's interesting. I think there, there's a case either way, but I, I, I mean, I, I guess I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So Lisa offhandedly reminds us at this point, uh, that Dinah's power is still offline from the incident with crawler, uh, but it will come back in just over a week. She also also mentions that Brockton Bay might be condemned because it would cost too much to repair, uh, which legend had brought up uh, in the last arc. Basically she's laying out the stakes for us. If Brockton Bay is condemned, Coyle will have to move and probably won't keep Skitter or Tattletail because they're too much of a threat. Uh, he knows how both of their powers work. He knows their blind spots. He knows about Taylor's dad. Um, and, they also may have to go up against Coyle's army in the course of this plan. Uh, Coyle's power, obviously, and the travelers. Uh, yeah, so basically set up. Yeah, yeah. And, and like we said, if we treat the Slaughterhouse Nine section of Worm as its own separate book, then chapter one of this arc has to set up not only the events of this arc, but the events of the entire plot of this book of Worm. And we see here, uh, as we round to the end of this chapter, that's exactly what we're doing. We've got set up. We have our stakes now. We have a time limit. We have everyone on this team on the same page. We get all these hints of the future conflict. We drop info on the, the mayoral election, which is going to become an important plot point um, through this section and then uh presumably into the rest of arc 15 and possibly beyond um so yeah this is this is a lot of setup and the end of this is specifically just setup and it's good setup it makes sense um whenever you have a chapter like responsible for doing and setting up so much stuff um there's a chance that you get like lost in the weeds a bit and lost in the uh, exposition but i don't think that happens here i think there's enough interesting things going on there's enough interest in the characters themselves and their relationships with each other that this still manages to be engaging yeah i mean a lot of what it does is it like makes you excited about what's to come like it's it's throwing all these elements at you and and allowing you to say like okay how is this all going to shake out i I kind of know that we're going to be seeing this element this element this element um but uh don't know how that's going to how that's gonna go so i mean it's, i mean you do but i, I do but Scott, <laughs> it's it's really it's been really convenient in this in the course of this show that my memory is terrible and, <laughs> and that i read this story way too fast the first time because i forgot so many things it's just really fortunate well maybe you should start making speculations then <laughs> maybe so <laughs> All right, so we move into, well, we don't move into so much as we laterally go into uh, interlude, whatever number we use for interludes. It's Carol, um, who I guess we'll find out who that is shortly. Uh, And this is another great interlude. This one really hit all my dad emotional buttons. 
yeah, I'm, I'm not a dad, but this hits all my uh, overly sensitive human buttons. Um, and, and I think it's funny because we have this right here, and part of me wondered for a bit if maybe this would have worked better at the end of the last arc. Um, but I think it's I think it works OK here because chapter one sets up the story going forward. Um, but I think this interlude serves to remind us that Worm is not a sitcom. We don't reset at the end of the next week. We don't we have to deal with the repercussions. We have to deal with the consequences of things that happen. Um, and, and this is this is what this arc is. This is dealing with the consequences of the entire Amy arc of the Slaughterhouse Nine section. Um, and. Holy shit, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are there consequences? Um, this is yeah. this is this is a tough one. This was probably one of the hardest things to read for me. Um, and it's probably gonna be pretty tough to discuss again. Yeah, I agree. J- just from the perspective of like our show, I, I, I had I was like, man, I, I really wish because I knew this was coming. I was like, man, I really wish that this had been in the last discussion because it it like it caps it caps things off as a discussion ender very well. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, see, I thought about that for a long time. Like, would this have been better being thrown at the end of arc fourteen or not? Um, I, part of me still thinks yes, um, but it's not not that that's not saying that it does not work here. But um, I certainly got the feeling as we con- like, there's so much conclusion around 14 because it's ending so many things and we have this this amy and and glory girl part just kind of left dangling and you're just kind of like what's going on with these guys um Mm -hmm. why didn't we wrap that up like if if worm ever gets published and these are in separate books and you have to wait like months between (laughs) the publishing of one and another i think i think people would be going insane yeah i I mean if it weren't for the fact that we're doing this show and breaking things up arc by arc, um, I would not even have noticed that this was in a different arc. <laughs> um, but, but like, yeah, if it were, if it were literally a separate book, then that would obviously make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. So uh young Carol, probably like a young, young teenager, maybe preteen. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, I don't know what, what age sense did you get? I got teenager. I got okay. probably Taylor's age is how I felt. Okay. So young Carol and her sister Sarah are being held captive uh, and in poor, poor conditions. Yeah, so we start off this super depressing arc um, on a super depressing note. Um, kidnapping, starvation, and implied torture, um, implied other things that we don't really specifically get into, um, but they, they feel like they're there in the background. Um, mm-hmm. And... and <laughs> We're not going to go up from here. We're going to go. Yeah. We're going to. We start with this yeah. level and we just go down. Yeah. Um, right. So after establishing that setting, we Tarantino over to uh, Carol's conversation in the present with some guy named Alan Barnes, who I legitimately didn't remember if I was supposed to know who that was at the time. Sorry. Uh, where where she basically just uh, reiterates to Alan um, all the horrific things that have happened to her family recently. Uh, in a way that makes you really pity her. I guess I should just say right now that this is Brandish. This is this is Glory Girl and Panacea's mom. I, mm-hmm. I, I had forgotten her name, so I'm just going to say that for other people who also forgot her name. Yeah, and I think the Alan Barnes part of this is played as a reveal. Um, mm-hmm. So we just see him as the name Alan. Uh, Carol Brandish is talking to some random other lawyer named Alan. Um, and then at the very end, she says, welcome to Brockton Bay, Mr. Barnes. And you're like, oh, holy shit, that's Emma's dad. 
Um, and he was being really nice to this woman who was suffering, almost as if the world is complicated and not everyone that we think is evil seems evil and <laughs> everything's a mess. Um, and it's really hard to parse this kind of stuff. And, and that felt intentional to me. I think yeah. we're supposed to feel that that conflict because we know her as the father of one of the people that was the worst to Taylor. Um, and yep. we've seen him be terrible to her, too. So I think this is this is very picking him to do this was an intentional move. And yeah. I, it works. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that worked for you. Um, uh, I literally forgot that that was his name. Uh, that's what, that's what <laughs> I, I'd like to say. That's what reading this thing over the course of months does to you, except I've this is now my second read through. So my my memory problems once again are uh, showing themselves. So uh, back with Carol and Sarah back in time in captivity, a man with a knife comes in to kill them. Um, Sarah triggers becoming Lady Photon and she beats the man to death. Uh, the man who had fed them uh, their meals comes in with a gun and fires, but Lady Photon shields them. And then Carol triggers as well. Uh, we, we see another trigger event vision, uh, an egg creatures hatching and pairing off. Um, and now Carol, who is now Brandish, hacks the man to death with her hard light weapons. Yeah, so I'm done speculating about what the fuck is going on with these trigger visions because I have no idea. Um, he says right before he speculates on what's going on with these triggers. Um, so, oh so we we see a possible like creation of the universe here. Um, we've seen the two pairs kind of come together and then spin off before, but we actually see the point that they come together for the first time here. Um, the the one thing that really jumped out at me here was um, that we see some of these babies from the eggs um passengers i guess uh or whatever they are form into pairs of or groups of three instead of two um which specifically reminded me of the fact that there are three endbringers roaming around on earth right now um so that got me thinking are we like witnessing the birth of the endbringers um does this support my uh, a dead endbringer is what gives people their powers or passenger um i i don't no <laughs> um but but that's that's where my train of thought went um i think more importantly though i'm not sure how any of this stuff specific to my speculation or not ties into our powers as trauma metaphor idea yet and i think that's why i in this moment of having such a difficult time connecting this to anything because i just don't see it yet and if i try really hard to make those kind of connections i worry that i'm like tunnel visioning like tattletale like i'm just making speculation and then using that speculation to make more speculation and then just going down a rabbit hole that is not doing anyone any good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think tunneling, tunnel visioning like tattletale could be the tagline for any long running fandom. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, but, but I do want to talk about how these trigger events work narratively because I think we're once again seeing, um, how your power and the power you gain is related to, not only your sense of mind, but the events around your trigger event. Um, because we see that Sarah, uh, Carol's sister, uh, who becomes Lady Photon, right? I think mm -hmm. that's it, yeah. Um, she triggers an attempt to, like, protect her sister and herself. So she gains shields, uh, blunt force weapons. Carol, on the other hand, triggers because, specifically because the man who was feeding her, um, that she's kind of Stockholm Syndrome now, too, like, she thanks him in an earlier scene, um, mm -hmm. betrayed them and tried to kill them. So when she triggers, it's it's for revenge against this man that betrayed her. Um, not, not to protect them, but specifically to kill this guy. And her mm -hmm. weapons are much more deadly. They slice through people. They're, they're there not to protect, not to beat back, but to kill. Uh, mm -hmm. This is intentional, and it's important. Yeah, yeah, this is another hero with a decidedly lethal power set. Yeah. 
So back in the present, uh, Carol and Sarah uh, discuss that Tattletail has contacted them and offered information on Victoria and Amy's location in exchange for a two-week ceasefire. Yeah, and we see here that here, and specifically, we, we get confirmation of this later, but Taylor's acting very unilaterally here. She's not telling her team she's doing these things. She's not looping them in. She's just making calls and going for it. Um, and we're going to see this trend continue again and again throughout the, this section. Mm-hmm. So following this, we get another flashback. Uh, Brandish and the rest of the Brockton Bay, Bra- uh, Brockton Bay Brigade, tongue twister. That's why they changed uh, their name, because that was yeah, hard to say. Yeah, I, I assume that's why either that or there were horrible deaths or something. I don't remember. <laughs> um, they're confronting Marquis in his home. Uh, so this is like, you know, the intermediate past. And holy crap, is Marquis terrifying. Uh, he deploys his ability to extend and manipulate his bones offensively, defensively, and to burrow underground. He forms cages around people. Um, it's a lot like what Kaiser could do, but faster and more versatile. Um, we get the sense that he could have beaten all six or however many of the heroes if he hadn't been protecting something that was in the closet. Yeah. And again, I think this is because uh, we had heard, I think, that Marquis had the ability to manipulate bone before. And of course, my mind immediately goes, oh, like Wolverine, that's cool. Um, <laughs> like he gets claws and stuff. But of course, it's like 20 times more dangerous and cool and crazy than that. And I get again, like Wild Bow. I don't know where he comes up with this stuff. This is really cool. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, anyway, they, they break open the closet and inside is a six-year-old uh, panacea. And um, Marquis says, Brigade, meet Amelia. Amelia, these are the people who are going to take care of you now. Oh. Uh, so six-year-old Amy gets to witness her home destroyed and her father stabbed by heroes, uh, specifically by her own future surrogate mother. Yeah, and I think this is the, the first hint uh, towards a long line of them that Amy was kind of set up for doom uh, mm-hmm. from the beginning of her life, like that the, the the path that she has been heading down was kind of almost preordained by just the, the amount of terrible stuff she went through her entire life. Yeah, that's fair. So Sarah convinces Carol that somebody on the brigade does indeed need to take care of Amelia and argues that it should be Carol. Carol objects that she didn't really want kids in the first place, despite having uh, Victoria. Uh, she doesn't want anybody she can't trust in her life, especially somebody related to Marquis, who she likes slash hates uh, and associates with the man who took care of her during her, her kidnapping. And and this is, I think this is what good writing does, because Wildbo takes all these different threads, like... Obviously, there's a there's a reason why we saw the kidnapping. There's a reason why we saw that as her specific trigger event. And he's able to just tie all this stuff together. And it deals with kind of the cyclical nature of trauma here um, because she suffered a horrible trauma, something she hasn't gotten over, um, whether because of a passenger controlling her or just the fact that she's getting positive reinforcement for uh, embracing her trauma almost um marquis reminds her of that trauma um and then she hates him and then so she hates her his daughter because of that and it's just like and that leads amy down this road and it's just like it's just like you can't win it's just like you're screwed yeah right it's it's not as it's not even so much like amy thinks it has a lot to do with the fact that she's marquis's daughter she's the daughter of this super villain but right. it has just as much to do with the fact that the woman who who took care of her had this extremely complex 
you know, set of baggage right, right, that, yeah. that, that was pertained to her as well. Yeah. Um, and it, the, there's, there's some absolutely brutal writing here. Brandish decided on the most direct, clear line of argument she could muster. I don't want her. I can't take her. Yeah, and this is what Amy has always feared, that she's always suspected that her mother didn't want her. And we know now why. It's because she literally heard her say that thing when yeah. she was a child. She heard her say that very line. And she probably doesn't remember the specifics of that. Actually, we know specifically that she doesn't remember because that this whole event has kind of been just stored away and she doesn't remember any of the details of it. But she was right. This whole time she was right. Her mother never wanted her. How... Yeah, but- horrible is that yeah i know so so i don't know if this was intentional um but like children can remember things all the way back to or you know people can remember things all the way back to being like two uh assuming nothing bad happened to them if your memory if, if you don't remember anything from before you were six like amy apparently doesn't then that means something terrible happened to you basically yeah like that's which which is really sad um uh so so the fact that she doesn't remember this happening, um, except may- maybe super vaguely, means that like she's super su- uh, uh, repressed all of it. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, back in the present, uh, Brandish finally finds Amy, um, and it's obvious that something horrible has happened. Amy won't explain, so Brandish barges past her adoptive daughter, brandishing a weapon at her to keep her at bay, and they find Victoria inside. Uh, and apparently Panacea had lost track of what she was doing. Um, should I just read the whole passage? Scott? Yeah, I think it's necessary because I think to, to fully talk about this, we need, we need it to say aloud what, what yeah. happened. Yeah. A caricature, a twisted reflection of how Amy saw Victoria, the swan curve of the nape, nape of the neck, the delicate hands and countless other features repeated over and over again throughout. It might even have been something objectively beautiful, had it not been warped by desperation and loneliness and panic. As overwhelming as the image and the situation had been in Amy's mind, Victoria was now equally imposing in a sense. No longer able to move under her own power, her flesh spilled over from the edge of the mattress and onto the floor. And I'm like, I'm trying, (laughs) I'm trying to deal with this. Like, as you read that back to me, like, it got me emotional because this Mm -hmm. is like, this is a thousand times worse than anything I could have ever imagined. I mm-hmm. mean, this this is at the end of that path that, that Amy had chosen. I mean, Bonesaw succeeded in here. She turned Amy into a kind of monster. Mm-hmm. And and what she did to, to Victoria here is quite literally monstrous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and, and it's I think I mean, the saddest part for me here is how just I mean, obviously, Victoria is like, you know, ruined um you know might as well be dead i guess in terms of 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 how it's being portrayed here yeah um and and but but aim but but like amy is just emotionally like completely in a state of like panic and and desperation and just she's just completely destroyed um right so this is not a not a happy conclusion to the to as you were calling it the amy arc which which we've been seeing over the last arc or so yeah 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 Yeah. god this is so this is so hard it's hard to talk about like i'm I'm, and it's gonna get worse like it's gonna get more sad and it's gonna get more tragic and god i know yeah for some reason i can't find any fan art of this scene 
Insert laugh track. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so at this point, Carol almost attacks Amy. Um, but when she turns and looks at her, uh, she sees that Amy is, is more like herself or, or like Sarah had been. She's a victim. Um, she's not like Marquis. She's, she's more like, more like Carol herself, a victim of her own nature. Yeah. And this is, this is warm because this book does not have any easy answers. Um, it's not enough that we can just say, Amy, you're a monster and you've made this choice and now you're a monster and we can peg you as that and then move on. Um, because like we've been saying, Amy was kind of doomed to this path from the beginning, ripped from her father at a young age, dropped into a house with a mother who doesn't want her, maybe even hates her, um, surrounded by a sister whose very aura makes her fall in love with her. Um, trauma begets more trauma. Uh, it's a vicious cycle and this cycle has destroyed Amy. Um, yes, she still made a choice at the end. And, and, and I think I think that's important that she still had agency. She made this choice. She made this decision. Um, it is still her fault. But it's not hard to see this as an inevitable result of what happened to her in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's tragic. And it's terrible. And it's complicated. And it's great. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole free will versus determinism kind of line of discussion that, that we could be pursuing um, um, specifically here and, and definitely elsewhere because, yeah, I mean, she was she was in one sense preordained to end up where she ends up, but also there are choices that she makes that she could have made differently. So Yeah, and I almost think that conversation doesn't matter because, um, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, the end result is the same. Whether, like, and, and Amy is... I think I think both can exist. I think we can say, like I said, that yes, she made choices, and yes, this is her fault. Um, but we can also say that, like, you can't. It's it's not. It's too easy to just write her off as evil or bad, and then like throw the book at her and then just move mm-hmm. on. Like it's it's not it's not that simple. And I yeah. think we're seeing the complexity of characters here and the complexity of that, and and how Carol reacts to this. How Carol in this moment sees her maybe for the first time and just how much that complicates everything and it's just like it's so tragic like that it took it took for this moment for carol to finally see her daughter for who she is and not who she uh who she was terrified that she represented this this past trauma in her life and god it's so tragic yeah yeah she finally accepts her but in a sense it's only because she has sunk to the lowest possible point, just right. just, just right. like Carol had in her past. So we skip forward. Uh, Amy is preparing to leave for the birdcage. Uh, of her own volition, she's volunteered to go to the birdcage. Um, and she walks like a burden has been lifted from her shoulders. Carol hugs her one last time before she leaves. Yeah, I, I did not see the idea of turning herself into the birdcage coming, but it's brilliant. Um, and I think the, the, the beat about the burden being lifted is such a subtle, but important thing. Um, because Amy, like by making these choices, by doing these things, Amy has taken away the, the, the fear of not knowing who she is and just seeming to like embrace the version of herself that she's been fighting against her entire life. She's always feared that she was this criminal, this monster. And now she's made choices that have kind of confirmed this thing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, for the first time we've seen her in, in, in her story arc, she doesn't double down on, on this. She doesn't run away. Turning herself in is the right thing. 
She takes responsibility for her actions. She turns herself in. She does the right thing here. And I think that's her, her story is tragic. Her ending is awful, but she finishes at least this part of the story. I don't know if she's going to be back or not, um, but she finishes this part of the story doing the right thing. So do you read her turning herself in as being more about um, accepting responsibility or more about um, acknowledging that she is a, a dangerous cape who, who should not be in the public world? I mean, I, I think it, I think it can be both. I mean, I think th- there's definitely a sense when they first see her that Amy like is fully aware that what she did was wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. she's fully like she's she admits she she explains what she did to Glory Girl and she says like how she screwed up and she seems aware that of the mistakes she made and that why the things that she wanted were bad. So, I mean, it feels like a cop out to say both, but I think it can be both, and I think it is. Yeah, I mean, I think they're related, actually. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So Carol talks with Dragon, um, tells her that she didn't accompany Victoria to the parahuman asylum because she says Victoria is, quote, gone. Uh, She hangs out there for a few hours uh, so she can watch Amy's arrival at the birdcage on the monitors. Finally, uh, Dragon wakes her up when Amy arrives uh, and Marquis comes into the the women's section of the of the birdcage quickly um accompanied by lung i've been waiting he spoke that was enough she had the answer she'd wanted even if she hadn't consciously asked the question (laughs) (laughs) and yeah like i mean and and you could you could read that part of her turning herself into the birdcage was she knew her father would be there and Mm -hmm. she's kind of embraced the role as her father's daughter that she's been fighting against for a while and and that and, and and arranging things to where she would finally get to meet her father could be seen as part of that. Um, but I think the the most important part of this is its reflection on Carol, because that's the reason why Carol was watching. She wanted to see, is this my daughter or is this her, his daughter? And that's, I mean, that's, that's what we see that. Yes, absolutely. That now Amy is no longer panacea. Um, Amy is no longer this, this, uh, a Dallin, um, she mm-hmm. she has embraced this side of her and she's with him now um and it's it's such a tragedy and like i think that the reason why i love this interlude so much is because even if you remove a lot of the the backstory from everything else we've seen this almost works as its own like contained mini story this its own contained tragedy um it's it's and and it's so well done mhm yeah, the last bit there uh, was was the, the part that got me the most, uh, at, uh, hitting hitting my dad buttons, as I said, because um, uh, it, it's probably it's probably telling of, of how deeply the uh, the dad circuitry goes. But but in this moment, I'm super um, sympathetic with Marquis, actually, um, despite the fact that he's he's a bad guy and everything. Um, he like the the fact that he rushes there when when she arrives. Um, and 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 all that i was like yeah you know had to I mean, wipe a tear. and i think that's fair because you know he lost his kid when she was yeah. six years old and yeah marquis is a bad guy 
Um, but we also see him as a bad guy with a code. Uh, who, who does that remind you of? Yeah. <laughs> we have another main character bad guy who has a code. Um, right. and, and again, before people jump on me, I don't know the, the, the detail and the depth of the terrible things Marquez has or has not done. So I'm not directly comparing them. I don't want to say that. But I think, I think yeah, I think we can see from his perspective a bit here. Now he he's finally gets to see his daughter. And, you know, it only took for her complete and utter destruction <laughs> as a human yeah. being to, to get there. Yay. Yeah, I mean, even even Carol acknowledges that he has a code. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's uh, that's that's. Uh, I'm gonna okay. stretch. You know, that, that was nice. The, the thing is, I wish yeah. we were moving on to this to like sunny, happier times, <laughs> but we're not. No, <laughs> uh, you know this this next chapter though does have some delightful points before it brings us back down, Scott. Yeah, so, that's true. So. So what we're doing here is Skidder is thinking about priorities as they head uh, to attack the Chosen with Tattletail Imp Regent and his Shatterbird. And the banter here is just delightful. Yeah, I agree. I, I like this a lot. Um, there, there's almost this sense of clicks within the Undersiders themselves. And I love that Imp and, and Regent kind of call it out that you're the smart ones and we're the muscle or uh, or the non-planners, as it will. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And... And I there we see this region and imp kind of uh, back and forth going on. There's this sense of camaraderie, camaraderie between the two of them, um, and it's kind of surprised me that I never considered how well they would work together. Both how well their powers synergize, as we get called out specifically, but they're both younger. They're both very emotionally immature as well. Um, they both had like horrible parents, and they both operate on this kind of questionably moral spectrum. Obviously. Uh, Alec is, is considerably worse th- at this than than uh, Aisha is, but um, it, it's it's interesting and I like it. Um, also, yeah. everyone makes fun of Uber and Lee, and that's funny. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a lovely moment. Yeah, uh, and then of course uh, it's, it's acknowledged that Gru isn't joining them because he's quote tired, uh, which really means that he's just not sleeping at all and not really functional. Yeah, let's uh, hold off on dealing with this until we absolutely have to. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, Tattletail and Skidder talk medium-term strategy. Uh, they're manipulating Coyle's plans regarding the upcoming mayoral election to their own advantage. Yeah, uh, we're once again being reminded of the mayoral election, um, more setup. Uh, we don't get to see the payoff of, the, of this yet, but the book is clearly reminding us of this importance again and again. Um, and I think this culminates in, in Coyle's order at the end of this specific section. And I'm sure we'll lead into some events in the next section, but we'll, we'll get on that a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so also apparently there's a currently an unsettled split within the ranks of the chosen, many of whom don't want to follow purity. So they're vulnerable. Telltale tries to suggest a ceasefire with elements of the Chosen, but Imp objects due to them being racists who she hates. Uh, we could call this the To Tattletale, Everyone is a Morass of Personal Hangups chapter. <laughs> I think that's a very fair description, although I'm I'm kind of on Team Imp here. I don't think working with people who consider one of your the members of two of the members of your team less than human is is a good call. But, yeah, uh, I think that's fair. Yeah. But there's there's plenty of examples of uh, everyone being uh, obstructionist to, to Tattletale that yeah, we could choose from that, that we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. So, so they discuss how useful it would be to have a tinker on the team, and Regent accuses Skidder of basically being a tinker with her bugs, uh, which she denies. Yeah, this is an interesting thought, though, that I never considered. Um, I, I think we we 
it was defined to us by a listener as Taylor's toolbox, and we brought that up last week. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's not explicitly tinkery, um, but has a lot of the traits of uh, resourcefulness and usefulness that a tinker would. Um, I like the line of thought. It is interesting yeah. how like quickly she squashes it, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's more of her self-deprecation and and right. continue continually never wanting to be to, to see herself as impressive. E- even later in this arc, when she's just clearly impressive she's just like oh well i feel like i'm cheating it's not really fair yeah 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 Yeah. Uh, so regent brings in shatterbird to sandblast away the chosen's gang tags he and imp demean shatterbird at this point uh and skitter argues that that's uncalled for and she basically just has a problem with it he argues that first of all she's a mass murderer and second he's intentionally provoking her to keep her emotionally drained and less liable to escape his control. Yeah, I really like this because I think this is doing a lot of stuff for us. Um, first, we're reminding the readers that while Taylor is seemingly okay with Regent using his power, um, that she's only willing to push that so far, um, almost as if like this is an explicit setup for something that's going to happen at the end of the chapter or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second part, though, is Regent's reasoning being for practical purposes. And I think we're seeing in this moment Alec make the exact same kind of moral justification that Taylor does constantly. Mm-hmm. But Taylor didn't come up with this. This wasn't her idea, and she didn't make the justification herself. So suddenly, she has a problem with it. Um, and, and I don't... I, the weirdest part about this as I was thinking of it, like, the external outside objective morality of the situation really doesn't even matter anymore it's just these two people's definition of morality and definition of what is right or wrong in this situation um and 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 i think the key here is is taylor shifting morality and how the rest of the undersiders kind of have to bend and move to accompany her specifically um as this morality shifts Uh, Mm -hmm. and we're going to get in this more into the next chapter but you know, being Taylor's teammate must be a really big pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. The, the the strangest part of this to me, though, Matt, was how Taylor suddenly notices Shatterbird's teeth and then goes on this weird tangent about, like, wondering how the nine get dental work done. <laughs> and it's just like so like to me. Like, I, I thought about this for a while because it seems so weird and, and maybe I'm reading way too much into this, whatever, but. To me, it, it seems like Taylor, like, desperate to grab onto some line of thought that gets her brain away from dealing with the moral objection that she was raising, because she kind of loses this argument. Um, she she doesn't convince Alec of anything. He kind of is still going to do what he's going to do. Um, but she, she, she deals with this by packing it away and then immediately focusing on something else this time just fucking dental work <laughs> like it's it's really interesting and weird yeah yeah when you when you now that you've drawn my attention to that it is, it is really interesting how that how that kind of flows because she's she's arguing and it's like she can't really come up with a, with a with a, a with another counter argument to, to him and so she she, uh, she just kind of lets herself move away from it Right. And, and and the the form that takes is he just starts thinking about the nine getting their dental work and and right. th- I mean it, it's an example of um of um kind of her her showing her true colors a bit more when she's not being explicit about it I guess um, but yeah it's funny because I I really did I really didn't make much of the you know dental work thing and and the, the truth is it's not the it's not the dental work thing it's what the dental work thought is allowing her to just kind of cover for. Right. And I think the biggest support of this is as soon as she's she finishes that train of thought, 
they've moved on from the argument. It's yeah. done. Like we're just, we're just done with this argument right now. Yeah, yeah. Just t- developing better and better tools for uh, getting your head around moral uh, objections. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So they reach the chosen's base of operations, and uh, Skitter and Tatt- Tattletail use their powers in tandem. Uh, to locate and verify the absolute location of the Chosen inside the building. Uh, Skitter at this point attacks with her bugs and chasing the Chosen outside. Uh, and Shatterbird then harries them with a, quote, light flurry of glass shards, which uh, I don't think I would <laughs> I, I don't think I would be like, oh, don't worry, guys, it's just a light flurry of razor sharp glass shards. We'll, <laughs> we'll be fine. Um, so it, it's simultaneously a great fight uh, and a highly satisfying beatdown. The undersiders just decimate them. Part of this is the presence of Shatterbird, but part of it is also that Skitter is using her power at a completely different level than she was the last time they tangled with Night and Fog. And also, of course, the presence of Amp, I guess I should mention. Yeah, yeah. I think this is really telling because the last time we we saw them fight these guys, like Night and Fog, almost on their own, absolutely destroyed them. Like, it wasn't Mm -hmm. even close. Like, the only reason our heroes are not dead right now is because Tattletail, like, barely got a notification out to Purity that she knew where Mm -hmm. her kid was and they called the truce. Um, But now they defeat them, like, it's... It's like they didn't even have to try that hard. Like, they're just so much... They're on a whole nother level as far as power now. Yeah. Um, and it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's, I guess there's a few different elements that come into play, but but, but I, it's not so much the fact that, like, oh, they have Imp now and they have Atlas now. It's, it's more this line where Taylor is thinking to herself, with every new trick, strategy, and technique I came up with, I tended to think of how they could apply to previous encounters especially those encounters where we hadn't come out ahead. So it's not, it, it's not so much that they have more, you know, better tools per se. It's that Taylor is the Borg and she, she adapts to every new circumstance and like constantly is, is refining her, her toolkit and never, never letting the same thing beat her twice. Basically uh, resistance is futile. Yeah, you just uh, tied it all back to what would John Luke Picard do? So mm-hmm. good job, Matt. No, yeah. I think that's absolutely true, though. Um, she, you will not be able to uh, trick Taylor the same way twice. It's just not going to work. She specifically sets out to make sure that never happens. And we mm-hmm. see that here. Like, uh, the, I think you're going to get into it, but the cool silk nets she uses to catch the flat. Mm-hmm. Like, she's so smart here. Um, yeah. it, it's so great. Yeah. Yeah, right. So she she keeps line of sight on night using Atlas and Shatterbird forms glass uh, cages or barriers to contain fog. Uh, Skitter keeps night from using any of her tricks with her own new suite of bug based tricks, such as, like you said, using silk net nets to catch the flashbangs that she throws and just generally being clever with the silk. And then uh, Imp uh, sneaks up on night and tasers her as she's trying to evade Skitter. Yeah, it's kind of been slow going since Imp joined the Undersiders, but I think we're really starting to see just how powerful she can be as part of this group. Um, And I think it's I think it's really remarkable um, how clutch she can be in a lot of these scenarios. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Because that's that's not something that would have been obvious, I think. But like the fact that Knight doesn't notice she's there. So Knight isn't sure why her power isn't activating. Yeah, yeah, it's a good touch. Yeah. So, yeah, the Chosen are now defeated and cowed, and 
in their victory, the undersiders mostly act like true teenagers. They, they're just kind of <laughs> gloating in a very immature way. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, a really good reminder of all the relative ages of these people. And I think a lot of the Chosen at this point are fairly young too, right? I don't think all of them, but some of them are teenage, I think. Maybe I'm reading too much into that. But... I, I think so. I mean, I think Night and Fog are older, but I think yeah. uh, some of the others are younger. I think Othala and, and Victor specifically are... Maybe not. I don't know. But... Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's so funny because they're they're like ruling territory in, in the city, but they are mostly just kids still. Um, yeah. and, and it's easy to forget that with the, the level of adult choices and decision making and problems they're having to face here. But Taylor's 15 still, maybe 16 by now. I don't know. I don't know how much time has passed. Yeah. Yeah. I think I don't know. I thought she was 16. I thought she thought to herself that she was 16 when she was taking inventory of her memories. I'm not sure. That could be true. Um, yeah. So, uh, so first the undersiders steal all their, all their stuff from their hideout. Uh, and then they announce that they're going to borrow a teammate. And they didn't tell Taylor they were going to do this. Mm-hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think you and I talked about this before, how um, there, there's a sharp swing in, in tone because that was actually like a fun chapter. We got fun banter. We got a fun beat down on some bad guys who deserve it. Um, and, and now we kind of swing back the other way. We get the consequences of some of these things and, and some kind of uh, brutal, uh, tattletaling. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so tattletale has chosen Victor, uh, to be the tax for reasons that we'll get to. Yeah. It's vampire. That's vampire right. reasons. Vampire reasons. Uh, so Victor refuses to cooperate. And so tattletale orders imp to start hurting Othala, who we, we realize is his, his girlfriend, uh, then Tattletail starts using her power to uh, ruin everyone's lives, as she always does, uh, to drag out embarrassing, painful details of Victor and Othala's relationship. Um, and I think it's funny that I don't really feel bad about using Shatterbird to lacerate a bunch of people, but I'm always like, oh, too far when Tattletail goes after the personal stuff. Yeah, I think this 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 um, this generally thought of idea that messing with people's heads and messing with people's emotions is a step beyond just hurting them um like in war we like we're fine blowing each other up and shooting each other but like any kind of mental torture we draw the line at we say no you can't do that that's wrong um and i'm not surprised you feel that way i kind of feel that way too so i think that's just a general like human beings as a species have made a call on what is okay and what isn't as far as uh, your enemies go and yeah. we've decided this is not cool. Yeah, it's just it's, it's a very stark tr- contrast here because we've used some pretty aggressive force against these guys. And now all she's really doing is talking, but it, it feels really bad. And, and it is <laughs> right. really bad. She's, yeah. she's affecting them in a permanent way. So it takes her a while, but she gets around to pointing out that Victor is probably going to leave or betray Othala eventually. Uh, and, and that Othala is really in love with him. Poor little Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so so Victor and Othala reassure each other uh, while Tattletail goes off to get more information to use against them by ransacking their hideout. Uh, and Skitter does another characteristic horrifying thing that she doesn't really think too much about. I moved my hand and let the spiders swing a little to the left to make sure that they were in place and let them settle on his face. Hush, I told him. Now close your eyes. You don't want to startle them or they'll bite. Um... Uh, I love that. That's yeah, yeah. So you you just do you, Taylor. 
Tschüss, Sesko. This is this is me being absolutely terrified of this yeah. girl. And, um, and of yeah. course, I, I didn't read the part beforehand where they were shown to be black widows. Yeah, yeah, and they like on her eyes, or yeah. on his eyes, on his mouth, like mm-hmm. like it's just Jesus. And and yeah. like, look, Victor's not a good person. Um, we're we're gonna say this rather explicitly a little bit later in the chapter, but this is scary. Um, this this treatment of people, especially surrendered prisoners at this point, is kind of tr- worrying. Yeah, right. And what's funny here is that it's it's when Tattletail comes back after this, Victor fairly readily is is obviously ready to deal. You have to wonder how much of that was having the spiders on his face. Yeah, I mean the 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 age old um, argument for torture in a lot of places is that it gets us information or it gets us compliance. And I think there's been plenty of real life studies have sh- that have shown that that's not uh, exactly true. But I think it, it, when you let it be true in a narrative, it makes it so you have to deal with the thing um, yeah. that, that if, if it didn't work, then it's easy to say morally that was wrong. Um, yeah. But when it works, then you have to deal. And we've talked about this before. We talked about it with with the bomb that Pigo dropped. And and there's going to be something that happens that we'll talk about it again with in a bit. But I think that's that's intentional, um, and that's forcing you to deal with the morality of the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So so they take they take Victor. Um, we didn't say it explicitly, but yeah, the idea is that is that Regent's gonna gonna take him over. Um, so Skitter explodes at her teammates as soon as the enemies are out of earshot and this forces tattletale to try to placate her um so this is you know we we mentioned this earlier this is another place where skitter is not that she's wrong but she's basically as hard for tattletale to deal with as rachel is for for taylor to deal with um and and tattletale it does always kind of have to walk on eggshells because taylor is constantly like vacillating between being down for all their villain shenanigans and then suddenly having hangups that have to be addressed. Yeah, we've talked about uh, exhaustion or hinted towards exhaustion with this and how exhausting it must be to be Taylor's teammate mm-hmm. because you you never know which part of her you're going to get. You never know when she's going to be okay with this stuff or when she's suddenly not. And um, the uh, the way the way you get Taylor to be okay with the thing is by making her think it was her idea, and then she'll do the thing. Yeah. Just a little advice for the undersiders. That's some good management <laughs> advice right there. Manage up the chain of command. So, yeah, Skitter, uh, <laughs> she's she's forced into the position of defending enslaving Shadowstalker, <laughs> uh, which she had objected to at the time. Um, and and Shatterbird because they're terrible psychos, uh, but it isn't okay with Victor. This is different, she says. Yeah, it's almost as if the line is moving, right? Which is something we've been talking about, and we're seeing it rather specifically here. That yeah, whenever you're in a position where you have to defend something that a few weeks ago you were morally opposed to, you're, you're losing. Um, yeah. And of course, obviously, this is only different because Taylor says it is. It's actually right. the exact same thing. Right. Yeah, so eventually it's actually Regent uh, who really gives her the straight dope, though. Uh, and I love this conversation between them because uh, it, it's, it highlights a lot of 
fascinating things about both characters. It's very twisty and turny and hard to summarize, though. Yeah, I don't think we're going to we're going to try to do that. But I agree. He has this really great ability to just slice through kind of all her bullshit and get to the root of the issue. And I think the real the real reason here that Taylor is mad is not really because we're doing a bad thing to Victor. It's because she was left out that she wasn't part of the decision-making process. She didn't get to make the decision. And that's that's the real crux of the issue mm-hmm. um, for, for Taylor. And that's a very telling of who she is as a person and where she is morally right now. Yeah, and, and while I think you're right, that's not something that occurs to her consciously. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, we, we get a little, little bit more delightful banter here um, where uh, 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 Regent says... Uh, kind of obliquely aimed at Tattletail. Just saying, but having a power that gives you brains doesn't necessarily mean you're smart, uh, which is volleyed a few moments later by Tattletail saying, having Regent as a target doesn't change anything except taking the focus off of more important members of the team. <laughs> the, pass- <laughs> the passive-aggressive arguing here is so great. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's very thinly veiled, but it's it's they, they won't insult each other directly. Right. And but, it's but really I, great. But But I read it as them being totally like, like uh they're not really mad at each other right right because this like to to that like if if you sit there and think about their point of view right now they part of me thinks that regent's kind of like is taylor even being serious right now like is Uh she just joking like like it's like when you're in an argument with someone and the person's mad and you can't even figure out if they're being serious or not because like (laughs) the reasoning behind their argument is so astounding to you and that's kind of what what i feel like his point of view is right now like Uh like it's just like what like how is this different from all the stuff you've let me do before i I don't get it yeah yeah totally and 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 tattletale of course is just like okay this again we're gonna have to do this again yeah yeah (laughs) Um, and then this passage has to be singled out. Um, and me, Regent asked, no, I have faith in your judgment. I really don't. I admitted Psh, after everything I've done for you. Hmm. Never mind. He said, chuckling. Um, <laughs> I which, totally destroyed Shattersucker's entire life for you, Taylor. You'd really love it if you knew yeah. that I did this for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really good moment. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think this, this goes into Regent's mindset. This, this kind of, example uh shows how lightly he's taking this whole situation right yeah i mean he he's uh he's the closest to realizing he's a fictional character in the sense that like he just he takes everything very very lightly yeah that's just his 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 whatever his power or his his nature whatever uh yeah so so all in all this they they actually stand to gain a lot by by capturing victor because he can possibly crack the encrypted data that they stole from the PRT. Uh, he can possibly be used as a tool to recruit some of the chosen. Uh, he can be used as a conduit to out Coil as the benefactor of the Undersiders, which they want to do for their own reasons. Um, and he could potentially be used to figure out what Coil's day job used to be by letting Victor peek at his skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, with the way Regent's power works, uh, once he's body snatched someone once, he can do it to them again easily and so that means that a person who has been body snatched by him once basically can't be trusted anymore um which obviously is going to be a huge blow to the chosen um and and then what he's what kind of he and tattletail 
say is that you know th then uh, once that has been established, uh, then people start getting paranoid uh, when any of their teammates go off the radar even briefly, suspecting that they may have been body snatched, um, and and that paranoia has pros and cons. Yeah, and I think that's why this works so much. And we mentioned this before, but again, if we're trying to construct a moral argument around a certain action, but we don't bother to paint the clear benefits of that action, then there's really not an argument to be had. Mm -hmm. So, but, but that's what we do have here. Each time in this book we get a questionable moral decision, the benefits of going through with that decision always seem good and oftentimes arguably outweigh just what the surface negatives are of that decision. Um, and I think that gets to the root of the issue for why we're concerned with Taylor here, because there's, there's always going to be a reason to do a bad thing. There's always going to be an excuse for doing a bad thing. Um, and again, circling back, Taylor does, after her just initial gut level objections, she doesn't seem to be upset about the moral idea of using Regent's power in general. She's more upset about not being included, not being involved in the decision-making process, and not being the one that gets to make those moral calls. It isn't the morality of the issue by itself, it's that agency was taken away from her. It's only okay to do bad things when she says it is okay. Yeah. And that is a big deal, and that's really worrying yeah i think that's extremely uh, uh crucial and and uh i'm you've you've actually thrown me off a little bit because i'm like going back through the through the story up to this point and looking for other examples of that which are extremely plentiful um that's that's definitely yeah. something for us to, to uh you know keep keep noting going forward sure yeah yeah so uh before the chapter ends imp catches up with her uh startling her and asks her for a favor Oh boy! And now we have to <laughs> we have to tackle another extremely tough yep. interlude. I'm gonna take a drink just to <laughs> get uh, get get ready for this. I'm laughing because oh, I know I'm about to be really sad, and I yeah. I don't want to deal with it. Yeah, I think this is one of the chapters that I've actually gone and uh, like like reread individually, um, just like for for its own sake. Um, yeah, well, it's really it's really good. So I don't blame you. Yeah. So, yeah, Brian, Brian in a loop. Brian has been punching the heavy bag in his lair well past the point that he's injured himself. Uh, he's trying to get some kind of release of tension from the exercise, but it never happens. Uh, and that just causes his level of frustration to build. And so he keeps doing it. And he's finally interrupted by Aisha. Yeah, so. Again, it's our second mid-chapter interlude that is horrifying. Um, and I, I love this because he just wants to feel something. And it's, mm -hmm. not, it's not working. And the big thing that I wanted to point out here is this is the first time we've been in Brian's head this entire story. Um, and we see almost immediately he references his father. Like it's, it's three sentences in he references, my dad would have told me to stop punching by now. Um, and I think that's very... That's very explicit and on purpose because i think it shows how much brian's first trigger event and the trauma around his father is still weighing on him how much his dad's presence still rules his thoughts and rules his life and we're gonna see that on top of the the second horrible terrible traumatic event that he had like we, we can see why this is so debilitating for him 
Yeah, yeah. Um, just just ongoing in this whole chapter. Not that I've ever had anything like this happen to me, but like any kind of traumatic event, the, the way the writing here conveys um, his state of mind strikes me as being incredibly authentic. Yeah, and, I agree. And, and painful, actually. Um, yeah. So, so the saddest part um, when Aisha comes in, it, 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 the saddest part to me isn't even that he can't help but see Bonesaw for an instant. It's that he feels that he has to hide his distress from her. Yeah, and I think that's one of the most important things. Is not just that he's suffering; is that he can't he can't share that with people. Mm-hmm. And how can you get over something like this if you if you can't? if you can't have people help you. And I think that's the theme of this chapter is Brian finding his person to help him. And, um, I I think like, but in this moment, like there's so much helplessness, like how can he do this? Like the idea that you see your sister and you think of a bone saw, Mm -hmm. it's like, Oh my God. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so he's, he's having these, I guess I'll call them flashbacks but it's really it's it's more subtle than that it's more like it it's it's just the echo of 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 the trauma it's it's the flinch reaction it's it's the fear of the thing um more than necessarily a memory in, in many of these cases um it, but but he's having these these flashbacks even as he tries to reach for levity and and it, it just throughout this conversation with Aisha it just it continually locks him up shuts him down and and he's half zoned out for their whole conversation yeah, and he's basically like mid panic attack through this entire thing. Like his breathing is heavy and won't slow down. His heart is hurting him. Um, and I love how the the prose in this section grabs onto every little word said in this conversation and relates it back to Brian's trauma. Like every moment, no matter how how tangentially connected back to what actually happened to Brian, still draws out a hallucination or a flashback for him. Mm-hmm. Every second of every day, no matter what is said, no matter what is about is forcing Brian to relive this thing that happened to him. And how can you get over the thing when that is occurring constantly? You can't. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's so hopeless. Like it, it, you just, you just like feel for him and, and like you, you're put in this position where you can almost, you're almost there with him. You almost get it. Like you, you it's almost happening to you. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes me reflect on how functional he seemed during, during the last part of, of the last arc where, where he was out and, and helping them um, against the nine, no less. Yeah, um, yeah. And 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 there'd be things like, like someone would say something about like, yeah, Bonesaw is going to come after you and make it even worse this time. And he just kind of like shifts, and it's like, okay, that's it's probably incredibly horrible for him to experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we're going to see that 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 this, I think it does. It colors every interaction we've seen with him since. Uh, the the event of his second trigger and every action going forward because right after this chapter we jump right back into Taylor's point of view and we see him seemingly calm and collected and we kind of know this is not this is a front he's putting up this is not how he really is right right yeah um yeah so so Aisha tells him that she's leaving to clean out some merchants with Regent uh, which he doesn't like yeah and I get this is confirmation of what we Saul set up earlier, which is that they seem buddy buddy, and it's because they've been hanging out and and working together to to take over territory. Um, 
and I'm kind of inclined to agree with Brian here. Uh, I don't think Alec is the best role model for this girl um, at all. So uh, while, while I do like their banter, um, it is a little troubling from a moral standpoint. Yeah, right. They're both they're both super young, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he uh, he glances over the maps of his territory, designating enemy presences and sees that Aisha has been working hard, taking out nests of enemies and marking down her progress. Yeah, and I think this just reinforces that helplessness we've been talking about. Because as Brian has been out of it, people have moved in to do things in his place. This makes him feel guilty. That guilt drives him to try to magically cure his PTSD so he can get mm-hmm. back into action, which only serves to make things worse. And then the cycle just continues and continues and continues. And right. Like, of course, he hasn't been sleeping. Like, of, of course, like seeing that now, it's obvious how how bad of shape he's in. Yeah, this this macho personality of of like being unable to show weakness is like the worst possible thing to have when you have a, a, a mental issue like this. I think. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, he's thinking about how his body is failing him. His power is tainted. The city is soiled, ruined and festering. Then um, basically, he just is really depressed. Yeah, he's spiraling here. Like yeah. it's like it's it's. I think the part I loved most about this was he says that Bonesaw's giggling was so vivid in his memory that it sounded like she was right next to him. Like I can't, how like oh my god. Ugh. Yeah. Right. So so at this low point, he's he's like uh, he's he's still trying to put up the front though. So he decides he'll he'll follow Aisha and offer assistance. Um, and he has another flashback when he sees his costume. Um, as he reaches for it to get dressed, he's alerted that Taylor is on her way by a moth. Yeah, I think this is like the first time we've seen Taylor's um, bug method of communication from outside her point of view and how like weird it is because yeah. like there's just a moth flying on him and he like thinks it's Taylor, but it could just also be a moth flying on him and yeah. how weird that must be for just r- random people. Yeah, right. And then we get one of my favorite passages. It's it's actually longer than this, but I, I picked out just these few sentences. Um, so he's watching her approach uh, from across the street. She conveyed an eerie kind of confidence that he knew she didn't have at her core. Some of that was how she unflinchingly looked forward. She didn't react as the wind blew her hair across her face, didn't turn to look around the street as she crossed an, an intersection. Yeah, yeah. This. Uh, so I, I want to talk about this for a bit because... There's a lot of times when I wonder if I'm being almost like too positive about this book at times. Um, like we know that the author is listening to us critique his work and there's always this this fear sitting in me that I'm like pulling my punches because I don't want to hurt his feelings or something. Um, and it's kind of a constant presence in my mind. And I think, you know, you know, if I'm being totally honest, there there are a lot of nitpicks I could make about this writing, um, a lot of them stemming from the fact that it was written so quickly. Um, I think, yes. Worm could use some editing. Yes, there are times when I read something and say, eh, this could maybe be phrased a little better. I wouldn't double up on similar verbs here, or you could probably cut this paragraph down and still achieve your goal. I don't mention these things um, because, first of all, that'd be really boring to listen to. And second of all, I don't think they matter to much as me as like sticking the landing on the larger narrative beats, with which Worm so often does. But all this being said, that, that Worm, Worm is not perfect, but... Any, any doubt that I or anyone else should have about Wildbow's gift with words, I think, is dispelled when you read paragraphs like this one, um, mm-hmm. because you've pulled out three sentences here, and these three sentences are beautifully written, and they just perfectly, perfectly distill down Taylor. 
um, like an eerie kind of confidence, unflinching looking forward, didn't look around as she crossed the street. This, this stuff all has in-world explanations. She's using her bugs to tell where she's going. She doesn't have to look across the street because she knows that there aren't cars coming. Mm-hmm. But it's just this imp- perfect encapsulation of her very being. Like, Taylor's like a shark. She has to be moving forward. She rarely stops around to consider how her actions affect those around her. Face forward, always walking. That is Taylor. And mm-hmm. it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's, like, so... Yeah, I could I could point out little nitpicks. I could say I wouldn't have said this sentence this way. I wouldn't have done this this way. But stuff like this, like it's such good writing and it's it's such beautiful writing that like this makes me feel better about my (laughs) almost unending like uh, positivity when it comes to this book, because it's so well done. Yeah, I think we've talked about this before offline, how how, like I see I see a web serial as being something like a live performance of, of a musician where like if, if if the musician misses a note playing the song live like people don't boo it, it's right it's just like yeah this is the live show it's it, it's it's an, it, the whole the whole thing about it is that it's being done you know w- without the benefit of having multiple drafts and, and an editor look over it and everything and um so so nitpicking a missed note here and there uh, is really just missing the point of of the art form, I think. So that's yeah. that's why I never it never bothers me, and I, and I never feel a need to, to dwell on it personally. Yeah, and, and I think there's we've we've seen some other like I think people do like li- like not live readings, but like blogged readings of the stuff. And I've seen people do these things, and and part of me wonders is like, are, like are are they feeling the same pressure that I feel sometimes to like not be so positive as to be seen as you're not actually critiquing the work. So they're just like picking out little things. And like, it's just, to me, there's just no point to it. Like yeah. uh, uh, you're absolutely right. A missed note is fine. Uh, a messy song. Yeah. Call that out. Like mm. if, if a song's not working, someone needs to say that. And I think we do that. I think when there are parts that we just honestly legitimately feel just as a whole, as a large aspect of the story are not working. And um, we point that out. Um, yeah. but yeah, like the, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I kind of sidetracked us here, but I just think like, I was just so enamored with this whole section that I just, and I had been thinking about this idea of, of me being overly positive for a while now. And I thought this was a perfect reason for why I'm okay with, with how, with my level of positivity, because I am reinforced in my feeling of this is, this is a master craft work when I read stuff like this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, that's th- th- this. I mean, there's there's a lot of master level elements going on, but this is one of the things where you're just like, you can just point to it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Taylor has come to check in on him and cook dinner for the both of them. And while she's starting to cook the chicken, uh, she makes small t- small talk, basically, um, talking about her territory, talking about Aisha and how she's growing um, and how she took down Knight. Yeah, we see when Taylor's nervous, she tends to talk a lot and drone on. And I think we saw this with Rachel. I don't think we specifically pointed it out. But when she's really nervous showing Rachel her costume, um, she kind of went overboard explaining every little detail. And Rachel uh, actually says, I get it. Stop talking. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing that again here. I think she's trying to make small talk because she's unsure of what to do and what to actually say. Um, but again, we're getting Brian kind of half listening, flashing back to images of Bonesaw mm-hmm. torturing both him and Taylor now. Like it's not yeah. just he's not just dealing with his own trauma. He's dealing with witnessing terrible things that happened to her. 
and and god it's so hard to read yeah 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 so but but again he's 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 engaging with the conversation and and trying to act like nothing's going on so he he's returning the small talk he's saying that he doesn't think he'll be able to retain any skills that he steals via victor's powers because he feels like he's missing something important when he borrows powers something to do with passengers like like he doesn't have the assistance of the other person's passenger i guess is what he's saying yeah i mean there's this this definite trend through bonsall that the reason why we are so good we as in cape sorry I, the, the royal we we're yeah. so good uh, about using these powers um is because the passenger is helping them so he ha- doesn't have that so it's like it's like perpetually the first time he's ever used the power it's mm-hmm. sloppy and unfocused and kind of uncontrolled so that's what i gathered from it at least mm-hmm. yeah I, I think i think that's basically right i mean and, and brian's understanding of passengers is obviously not not like formed by anything more than what Bonesaw said. So yeah, it's, it's just a guess. Yeah. So Taylor offers him, uh, offers to let him experiment with borrowing her powers just, you know, to, to learn basically. So he engulfs her in darkness. Um, so she's basically standing there in the kitchen blind. Um, and she starts to ramble again about how small people are and how seeing through the perspective of the bugs centers her and makes her feel like her problems aren't so bad. Yeah. This is interesting because we've been in Taylor's head for uh, hundreds of thousands of words and i've not really heard taylor think like this before mm-hmm. um and part of me makes that makes me wonder if if she's putting on this kind of specifically for for brian's sake how she's reaching into her toolbox and trying to find something anything that can can help brian out here um i, I don't think that's 100 percent true but it is definitely food for thought yeah yeah i'm 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 not sure. I'm not sure, honestly. Um she 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 does have this thing where like it's obvious when he when we when we see her crossing the street, we don't get to see that from inside her head. Um but it makes us remember that she is so she is so in the perspective of her bugs that she doesn't even move around like a normal person anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, like, like it would almost be striking. Like he doesn't, he think like he'd have to say something to her because, because it's actually remarkable how, yeah, yeah. how unaware of her surroundings she seems. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do, I definitely think there's a, a level of escape in her power that we've seen repeated again, again. And, and it's, it's, always she's always used her power as an escape um and as a way of um putting aside her problems and the things she's been thinking of before we saw it more with her being skitter but yeah we're we're, we're absolutely seeing it as more just being in the perspective of her bugs constantly um is is removing her from herself a little bit Mm -hmm. um so i think that part of it's true i've just never seen her talk about specifically how it makes you realize how small everyone's problems are because i mean I don't Taylor like her problems are maybe small in perspective, but I don't know if Taylor would actually agree with that. Like mm-hmm. Dinah is the most important thing to her in the world right now, saving yeah. this kid. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I think, I think it, it, she's probably not like just flat out not telling the truth, but it was just very surprising to me because I've never heard her, her think like this before. Yeah. I think she is trying to comfort him because normally she is flagellating herself with something or other. Um, she's, she's not like, ah, just look at how at one, all things in the universe are. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, so Brian, as she's talking, he's watching her, studying her in the darkness. She obviously can't see him. Um, and I won't read the whole section, but there's some high-quality prose here as, as he's observing her. Yeah, I love how he describes her comfort in the darkness. Because uh, she can't see right now. She can't hear. Uh, she can't even really feel. But she's using her bugs, and her bugs accomplish all of this. And, and like you were just saying, she's more comfortable living it, it through and in her bugs than in herself. Um, and Brian reverse description fucks Taylor here. <laughs> and it's like literally the opposite of what Taylor does because he's pointing out her flaws. He says she'll never be conventionally attractive, but then he says he could see why someone would learn to appreciate these quirks in her. And I think there's something so adult in this kind of line of thinking. Like it's, it's such a mature line of thought to have because when Taylor describes Brian, when Taylor description fucks Brian, it's like a teenage girl with a crush. Like it's it's very physical. Um, mm-hmm. It's very uh, accentuated on the best parts of his body. But when Brian does a similar thing to her, um, it's with this this maturity that recognizes that not everyone is perfect. That um, I see your flaws, and I like you not only in spite of them, you know, but maybe because of them. And mm-hmm. I think I, I really I really appreciate that. I really like how we've kind of turned uh, how Taylor describes people and how Brian does kind of on its head. Yeah, I'm really glad that we got this this moment. Um, and I like your your comparison with with her description fucking habit. Um, and it's apparent that he doesn't really do that at all with anyone. It's almost it's almost like he's only allowing himself to do that here because she's in his darkness and she can't right. Right. S- see him. Yeah. So she tells him um, that she's read that people who've had second trigger events tend not to last long afterward. Um, And she tells him that she's here for him. Yeah. Uh, Taylor is really wonderful here. And she does kind of succeed in calming him down. And I don't want to read too much into all of this, but Brian specifically mentions that Taylor uh, seems as if she's not plagued by thousands of worries. Um, But we know Taylor and we know that she kind of definitely is. Um, and, and even furthermore, to calm himself down, Brian like reaches out with her power, um, like she's kind of been instructing him to do. He uses Taylor's power um, to to make himself feel small compared to everything else. And and again, I might be reading too much into it, but to me, this is like the first textual textual indication that Taylor's compartmentalization uh, that we discuss so often might be enhanced or or even fueled by her power. Uh, her her passenger because it's in this moment that um where they're both using her power that he's finally able to like put aside the feelings that he's had this this never-ending like uh worry and fear and uh trauma uh it's it and it's it's specifically when he's using her power that he does this so again i mm-hmm. might be reading too much into it i don't know um but th- I, I, that just jumped out at me yeah it's like 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 uh he's borrowing her power of compartmentalization yeah exactly uh, exactly that's that's, uh, that's interesting i hadn't i hadn't uh not noticed that but I, I think you're i think there's something to that so at this point he's he uh kind of impulsively approaches her um but but kind of stops himself um, but he's forgotten at this point that she can actually sense his movements, even though she can't see him. Um, and she tells him to go ahead. So he, he hugs her and, uh, they, they hug each other for a moment. Um, and, and he, he dispels the darkness and, and the awkwardness of their, of their exchange here and the writing here is so lovely and, and so real. 
Um, and they, they transition to lying on the couch where they share a single kiss and then Brian's finally able to fall asleep. Yeah, yeah. I think awkward and real uh, are, are great words to use here because it, it absolutely is. And I, I like it so much. And I really like that Brian is like self-aware enough to acknowledge that this moment for him is not some magical cure, uh, that he's not better. And that I think, I think specifically he says, if he even thought about it for half a second, Bonesaw would be standing there in his kitchen waiting for him. But he does acknowledge here that he needs an anchor. He needs someone else. He cannot do this alone. And Taylor's willing to be that person for him here. And Brian is still broken. Uh, he's still got a long way to go for, before any semblance of like normality can return to him, if, if he can ever get there. But in this moment, he can finally breathe, and he can finally sleep. And for now, that's enough. And yeah. it's this beautiful little moment. It's a beautiful end to this very depressing interlude. But I, I love it so much. Yeah. I mean, it's a really hard interlude to get through, but it's like, like that's why I, I had come back and reread it because it's 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 worth it to get through for the little bit of of like extremely um honest uh uh you know soul bearing catharsis we get at the end there yeah 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 so so then now that brian has fallen asleep um taylor we switch back into taylor's head for 15.4 and uh, Taylor muses to herself about the loneliness of being a cape separated from baseline humans, but also driven apart from one another as parahumans. Um, she's thinking about how most parahuman pairings she's aware of end up in heartbreak one way or another. So for her, lying next to Brian is bittersweet. She doesn't feel happy exactly, but she feels like this is what she's supposed to be doing right now. Yeah, I love that we really get to see this moment from both their heads. I think it adds so much to everything that's going on here that we get to see both their perspectives on this. And to be honest, I think this relationship or uh, whatever it is, uh, is kind of doomed. Um, I, I don't think they're ever going to be a couple or girlfriend, boyfriend or married or any other other uh, social labels you want to put on it. I just don't think it's going to happen. There's too much going on here. There's too much pain. There's too much trauma and, and fighting for them to ever be able to just have a normal relationship. But I also think that's OK, because right now Brian needs this. Um, and 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 maybe Taylor does, too. Maybe Taylor needs this right now, too. And, and that's OK. Um, mm -hmm. and, and and I, I, I'm okay with it. Like, yeah, I just hope it doesn't, um, cause she's still a teenage girl. So I hope it doesn't, um, um, go somewhere that it shouldn't because of, uh, their, her emotional immaturity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that, that, uh, she doesn't really think too much about like the, the fact that she needs it. Um, she's, she's really focused more on him at this point. Um, and, and she's she's kind of looping through all these reasons for, for why this is a good thing that she's doing um, and, and this is what she needs to be doing. Um, and then, of course, she thinks to herself, all of which amounted to a pile of excuses and rationalizations I was layering on top of one another, trying to convince myself this wouldn't end disastrously, that I wasn't being irresponsible, that I wasn't going to regret this on 100 different levels. It was enough that I could feel at peace here. Oh, high self-awareness. Um, but yeah, she's basically saying, hmm, yes, look, my, my justifications are sufficient despite my deep reservations. Uh, carry on. I mean, at least she's aware that she's doing it. So maybe steps, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I was just calling this out as another example of like yeah. her, her complicated relationship with 
judgment. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, she wakes up, gets out of bed, and Tattletail texts or not bed, couch, and uh, Tattletail texts her that it's time to come to Coils and let Gru try borrowing Victor's power. So Taylor heads to the kitchen and runs into Aisha there, uh, who is her own special form of grateful to Taylor. Uh, basically, she threatens to use her power to drive Taylor crazy if she hurts Gru. Yeah, uh, there's that Aisha that we know and love. A fierce but protective little sister. Um, this, of course, indicates that she's also used this technique of driving people crazy um, many times before, uh, which is a little disturbing. Um, and you can kind of see her and Regent executing this plan with almost surgical precision to basically destroy any person who they deem bad or shouldn't be here anymore. Um, and this is kind of like a, hey, did we forget these people were bad guys? Because uh, uh, they're bad guys. Yeah, right. So Gru comes down and, and he's being fairly businesslike. Um, he, he wants to know what the plan is for dealing with Coil. Yeah, but I think this is, I think his businesslike assertiveness is intentional here because we've seen inside his head now. And we mm-hmm. know, um, we know that this is all on some level a ruse and, and a, mm-hmm. a mask that he's putting up. So uh, I think that's a very specific intentional juxtaposition where we're like, we see we see you now, Gru. We see what's going on here. We know this isn't real. Yeah. Yeah, and and if anything, he he just showed vulnerability to her. So now, like for his macho self, it's important that he kind of plaster over that with a bit of formality, I think. Right, right. So yeah, she discusses some of her plans. Uh plan A, as she calls it, isn't practical. It's mostly just somehow relying on coil finding Skidder to be so damn valuable that he can't stand to lose her. Um, and she, she tells him she, at this point she tells him the details of coils power. Uh, I don't know whether to make a big deal of that or not. I, I, Tattletail swore her to secrecy, but on the other hand, everyone's kind of in agreement about going against coil now. So I guess it doesn't matter probably. Yeah. The, the text does not treat this as if it's a big, important uh, deal. Um, for my part, I don't think so either. I just think it was a secret until specifically because they did not know how the rest would react to a takedown coil plan. Um, so I, I think that's, I don't think it's supposed to be a big, you betrayed Lisa thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think, yes, while plan A isn't very practical, uh, plan B is basically fight everyone and somehow win, um, yeah. which is almost as bad. <laughs> As, as make coil let go person we know he's not going to so yeah. we don't have a lot of great plans here right now yeah kind of grasping at straws so at this point they head to coil's base for a big meeting with uh, all the uh, unders- undersiders and travelers uh, taylor's disappointed with how unromantic the morning has been despite herself yeah again a good reminder that taylor is at the end of the day still a 16 year old girl um i think we can see as adults that their relationship cannot be successful um i don't know if she has that awareness and that's that's worrisome yeah i i I doubt it i mean we we've seen how we've seen her pursue this relationship over time and uh and uh i i think maturity is not one of the words that i would use uh when describing it yeah can we just stop and say taylor as a mary sue is the dumbest thing ever (laughs) and this is a very explicit reason for why because a mary sue character would not have as terrible and messy and awful as of a romantic yeah. relationship as this one. Right. This, this unsa- unsatisfying and, and, and relatively painful relationship. Yeah. 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 So they arrive at, at Coyle's base. The base has really been built out. Uh, it, it keeps getting better and better every time they visit. 
and they see Tattletail telling the travelers some unspecified bad news. Yeah, I assume this bad news is I have no idea how to help Noel and Coyle promising that I'd help you was a pretty stupid idea because I can't help. So Coyle solicits progress reports from the gathered villains at the meeting. So the, the travelers have made varying levels of progress. Uh, Ballistic is furthest along and Sundancer is least settled in. Um, Ballistic still has to deal with Parian, who won't let go of her territory and scrub who's still just hanging around yeah the return of scrub uh who still hasn't changed his name to something better for some reason i don't understand why why you gonna stick with that name dude that's terrible you can't can't change it the merchants are dead he can change it (laughs) yeah so the undersiders are likewise at various stages of solidity uh skitters furthest along by far um but of course rachel is is best because she says, nobody left in my territory. Coyle says, no threats. Rachel says, nobody. <laughs> I love Rachel so much. This is so great. Yeah, I, I, I love it. So Coyle explicates uh, his plan to basically install a puppet mayor of Brockton Bay. Yeah, and it was at this point that I remembered that we don't actually know Coyle's true identity and decided for a brief moment that Coyle's puppet mayor might actually just be Coyle himself. Um, But then I thought about it and I thought that might be exposing him to too much risk because I think he wants the power, not the position. Um, So being mayor himself would not get him anything. Um, Also, like, I think it's very clear that the government itself seems to have very little power in a world with super humans flying around with lasers. Um, So just being mayor like isn't something he would be striving for. Um, so so I, I kind of had a prediction and then reversed it in the same moment. Okay. Yeah. I, I wonder I wonder if I wonder if the mayor controls the local PRT. Because that would that would make a difference. Yeah, I it doesn't seem like it. It seems uh, like they operate yeah. pretty independently. Yeah, I agree. It seems like the, the PRT director has has more sway there. Yeah, which... like I wonder if <laughs> Hey, hey, Mayor, we're going to drop a, a bomb on your town. Is that cool? Yeah, right. Yeah, good point. I'm sh- sure they didn't run that by him, actually. <laughs> yeah, so after the meeting, uh, Tattletale tells them that she has picked up on something, and she now thinks that Coyle is probably on to them, and that it was, quote, one of ours that tipped him off uh, somehow or another. So, uh, And she's certain, absolutely certain, that he intends to eliminate Skitter soon. Yeah, so my my speculation here is that the public is going to want me to speculate on which of the undersiders it was that tipped Coil off. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and preempt that by telling you that my guess is that Skitter tipped him off herself uh, when she asked him to release Dinah way back. Uh, I don't even know how far back that was. Arc 10 something. Yeah, it was at least. Yeah, it was a couple ago at least. Yeah, and I think. Uh, Coyle has since that moment been working with the awareness of Skitter betraying him as a real possibility because that was really kind of boneheaded. And I think Lisa actually calls her out on that uh, in this chapter or the next that mm-hmm. that tipping her hand to him like that was was pretty stupid um, because now he knows something specific about her and knows that she wants something outside of what she's going for. So that's my guess. Um, I don't. I have a hard time believing anyone specific on the team would have said that uh, because the only one it could have been up until like a couple days ago was was Brian. Yeah. Or, and, uh, yeah. or and I don't I don't think it'd be Lisa. 
and and you don't have to think too hard about his power to to realize that he can get information in in ways that are completely opaque to anyone right right yeah so yeah so so that was the ominous note at the end of uh that that chapter we move into 15.5 and uh grew is now trying to use his power to steal some martial arts from victor but victor isn't cooperating and keeps feeding him languages instead yeah i love how casually we're just discussing the kidnapping and, and body control of a person that, to permanently vampire their powers away from them and into someone else this is a good times good yeah. times just how casual we're doing this is remarkable yeah there, there was a section that i wanted to draw out to you because uh, as, as taylor's sitting there um she's kind of pondering why uh, why coil would want to eliminate her why coil would want to do this with her and i think it's this this fabulous moment of her own uh, almost like self-importance um which is weird for taylor but she says i had to wonder why i was arguably doing the best among his underlings why was it so hard for him to simply let Dinah go? Maybe take countermeasures to ensure she didn't betray him and leave things alone. I wouldn't be any threat to him if he wasn't doing something morally reprehensible. And I just want to be like, Taylor, <laughs> his entire plan is to do morally reprehensible things. Like, how do you not see that? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, she's continually blind to how much value dinah actually provides him right so right. it's like uh uh between his power and her power look at what he's accomplished why would he even consider that yeah and it's it's really weird for for her because i mean she's she's a self-deprecating type of person um we didn't talk about it but yeah in that in the meeting with coil um she says she felt like she was cheating because her power is suited towards this so she she like beats up on herself in that moment and here mm -hmm. is like like, look what I'm doing for him. I'm so much better than this small little child. And you're like, like, it's almost as if she can't, she can't see that there's obviously some ulterior motive under everything that he's doing. Like that he, she's just like accepted that his only plan is I want to take control of this city. And yeah. it's like, come on. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and she, she has, she has to be blind to that because now her goal is to save Dinah, which requires, helping coil right. so if coil is planning something even worse than dinah being in captivity then it just becomes an unsolvable problem for her yeah yeah and and, and it's like in a second we're going to see them talk about why coil has so many soldiers and it's yeah. like such this this it's, it's very obvious narrative setup here because we're we beginning hint after hint that coil's goals are not simply uh control brockton bay because we know he's a cauldron cape um, we know he bought his powers for them. So he's up to something far more than just that simple thing. And I have no doubt that he's using each and every cape as his, his employee to further whatever that hidden goal is. And, and like, again, like, like you said, we live in this world where he's, where we, where we know he's constantly running two versions of everything. So when people discover things like Telltale discovering his plan to kill Skitter, um, you got to think at least on some level that that was the outcome he wanted to happen or the best outcome to happen. So like, there's just so much going on under this and you're just like, why can't these guys see it? Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, they're, they're terrified on some level, I think, because yeah. as, as you said, like their plans actually suck. So yeah. They, and there's just... like, there's a feeling we get here of how overmatched they are. Mm -hmm. Like 
we haven't really seen this. It would mean they fought really powerful things, but like, yeah, they don't have a plan. Like he seems to be one step ahead of them at all times. Mm. And like, what, what, what are they going to do? Yeah. Right. So yeah. So Telltale suggests at this point that, that they need to subvert one of the travelers or at least get an in with them, uh, get them on Taylor's side. Um, and that it would be good to work on ballistic, uh, while, while Taylor is out with ballistic, I, we, we didn't mention this, but uh, uh, Taylor had requested to go along with Parian uh, with a ballistic when he went out to deal with Parian. Yeah, my initial read on this plan was that it seems like a, a serious misread of the specifics of the traveler's relationship. Um, so I was kind of happy when future events uh, kind of indicated that to be true. Yeah. Um, that 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 they think they could so easily drive a wedge between these people was like a, an interesting like. I'm not sure if you're reading what their relationship is right, and I know very little of them, and I I feel that. So mm-hmm. um, I was glad that that's kind of the way it, it ends up turning out. Yeah, I, I think I had the same sense of them. Um, so yeah, so she she also mentions uh, that the undersiders are leaning toward making Skitter the team leader. Uh, with Gru being emotionally out of commission. I've been saying, Matt, I've been saying for mm-hmm. arcs and arcs and arcs, and Taylor's so characteristically self-deprecating at this moment. Like, I can't do this. I can't do that. Even though she's basically been leading the entire group from almost mm-hmm. the beginning, uh, just like in a de facto sense, uh, it's a really good moment. I like it. Yeah, yeah, me too. So yeah, Ballistic enters and sees them talking. Um, and uh, basically, Taylor and Ballistic just don't get along at all. Um, they're they're talking as they're walking to to do their thing, um, and Taylor is 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 you know maneuvering on him conversationally, trying to trying to probe him. <laughs> there's this there's this, just just a few words that I picked up. Fine, he left an opening for me to target, which <laughs> <laughs> Taylor thinks like this all the time, like like. Using the word target in, in, in the sense of like a conversation. So we can't really say that it's ballistics fault that the conversation is combative. Um, she's obviously trying to get inside his head. She's being very aggressive. Uh, and it's probably a bad tack to take with him specifically because she ultimately decides that his psychology pivots around setting himself apart from others. Yeah, I agree. And this conversation really works because it is a lot of verbal gamesmanship. There's like a lot of doublespeak going back here with both mm-hmm. sides not really dishing any information, but saying a lot of things. Um, and it's it's really interesting. Um, and yeah, she I mean, she reads him totally wrong. Like she just she kind of bungles the conversation from the get go. And yeah. she tries multiple different tactics and she tries to switch tactics midstream, which is so transparent. <laughs> like he he like reads into it almost immediately yeah yeah it, it's really nice when someone other than the protagonist is is clever and it, i mean this really isn't her strong suit so. yeah no not at all yeah uh he, he does tip his hand a little bit regarding the inner workings of the travelers he tells her that to his mind at least trickster took everything from us yeah and i am dying for the reveal on what the deal with these guys are um you know at this point we know noel was their leader at some point um we know something happened to her we know trickster was at least in some people's eyes responsible for removing them from their friends family and home um and we know whatever happened to noel was trickster's fault too but possibly like indirectly so i'm ready to make a speculation here um if you're ready so Whatever decision Trickster did, and I haven't quite worked that part out yet, but it, it led to this weird mutation of Noel. Um, and 
that whatever this mutation was drew an Endbringer to them. So that Endbringer wiped out their entire city. We've heard of this happening several times in the past. I don't remember exactly where, but I'm going to assume that this lines up with the timeline and what I'm saying here. But um, so their home was completely wiped out. And that's why they have to go on the run all the time, because like the, her very existence kind of draws Endbringers to her, uh, which explains why they don't have a home. It explains why Leviathan seemed to come to them. And it explains uh, uh, why they they got to keep moving. So that's my speculation. Um, I will be paying attention to the little more nuggets we get, and maybe I'll be able to uh, add more to this as we go. But uh, that's what I got. All right. Neutral response. Um, (laughs) So, uh, yeah. So Ballistic, after that point, he closes up, um, doesn't offer anything more. And he's very suspicious of her motives. And he assumes he he also has a, a slightly wrong read on her. He assumes that she's just aiming to make the travelers look bad. And make the undersiders look good in comparison. Um, so he will let her. He he won't let her assist uh, with the assault on on Parian once they get there. Yeah, I mean, but his he, he was wrong in that specifics, but he was right in the fact that her whole mission seems to be to try to make him betray his friends. Yeah. Um. So yeah. really, really good job on that one, Taylor. You you really nailed that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, and then she proceeds to be stand up uh, by going behind his back. And uh, warns Parian with her bugs uh, that that something is up, and then she uh, sneaks into Parian's uh, building and meets up with her as Ballistic blows apart her territory outside. Um, and Parian is surrounded surrounded by people wrapped in cloth, hiding their bone saw altered bodies. Skitter invites her to join the Undersiders, and in exchange, they'll take care of her people. As she's talking, somebody sneaks around behind her. Yeah, and Taylor just is exuding this level of confidence here that we don't see much in her, but it gets her in trouble because she clocks this person sneaking up behind her. She senses them almost immediately, but deems them not worthy uh, of consideration because they don't appear to have anything that can hurt her, um, which is a dangerous level of overconfidence when you're dealing with a world in which people have superpowers, uh, which we see almost immediately. Right. Because this person sneaking up behind her is Flachette, who tackles her and pierces her through the costume and the shoulder with her physics breaking spikes of metal. Is it because Flachette and, and Perrion are in love, Matt? Is that why? I did. I mean, probably. <laughs> and, and, and I love the the lady said no. Yeah. yeah. Just, uh... <laughs> it's really it, it is. It is really great. It's a really good moment. And you're just yeah. like in this like like. I mean, I, I'd be lying if I said I saw it coming, but there's obviously a very clear setup with how, um, how readily Taylor dismisses this person trying to sneak up on her. And it's a really good moment. It's, it's a tough moment to end the week on, but it's a good one too, um, because it's like a pretty natural cliffhanger. And I think the first half of this was very much, the first half of this arc was very much set up and we're going to be moving into, uh, the execution of a lot of things we talked about in the first half. So in that sense, it is a good place to end. Um, but I'm anxious to see what's going to happen here because she's in quite a pickle now. She's very, very seriously injured in her arm. Yeah, um, yeah this is an unusually bad injury, even by worm standards for, yeah. for Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like I like this notion of breaking up the story into books um, because, you know, in a certain light, you can look at a given arc. Maybe like, for example, maybe this arc, I don't honestly remember exactly what happens where but you you might look at at this at this arc as a whole and say like less happens in it um but 
I think the correct lens is to say, well, this is a setup arc for this coming multi-arc, you know, quote unquote book. And, and so you can't like you, you should, you can't and shouldn't actually expect a constant, you know, steady bead of, of plot intensity at all times, because it's really this sinusoidal setting up things and, and then reaping the benefit of them and then yeah. letting things relax again, setting them up again. That's, that's the strength of this form of storytelling, I think. Yeah. And it, it would get boring, I think mm-hmm. any other way. And I think the reason, the reason why those other sections work so so well is because of the time it takes to set up stuff like this because we're doing a lot of character work in these sections uh, like we like we said at the beginning of the episode we're dealing with characters and their bonds to each other and how they're growing together and how in some cases they're going apart and how the conflicts within the group and outside the group are testing those relationships and that's what we're setting up and that's what we're exploring so far in this arc and Mm -hmm. it it makes the character moments that we're going to see in the future um land better when you have a clear grasp on uh what each character wants what they need and who's standing in their way of those things and that that's setup is so necessary and it's so important and it's the part that's so often rushed and yeah. I love that we get a lot of it here and I love that it still manages to be engaging on its own even though it is just trying to set up things in the future. Yeah, that's that's absolutely a a, a skill of of wild bows that I that I uh, am always like mining and trying to understand basically. Yeah. 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 All right, Scott. That was arc 15 part one um let's let's move on into your speculations all right so oddly enough um so far none of my old speculations were proven right or wrong this this week um we saw uh flechette with parian but i my speculation was stupidly specific (laughs) so i'll have to wait for confirmation of i think i specifically said she would leave the wards to join parian um i don't know (laughs) if that's true or not yet um, I, sometimes I get overly specific and it, uh, ends up biting me in the ass, but, um, we'll, we'll hold off on that one, but nothing else was uh, proven or not proven this week. Uh, so nothing on that front. And as far as new, really the only one I had was what we talked about. My, 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 my running travelers theory is, is my new one. So again, uh, to remind everyone that, uh, trickster, uh, possibly indirectly, indirectly caused Noelle's mutation, which for some reason called the Endbringers to her, um, which explains, why her their previous home doesn't exist anymore apparently, or they can't get to it, um, and why they're constantly on the move, and why Leviathan headed right for her when it showed up in Brockton Bay. So all that's right. all I got. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that'll wrap up part one of our coverage of Arc 15, Colony. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. And as always, we appreciate your feedback, and we're trying to uh, always improve. So let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. Yeah, you can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. Um, Because I'll be out of town for these couple weeks, I will not be doing my usual live tweet. So uh, if you're following me to look for that, I'm sorry. I will resume again in August. Um, But you can follow my personal Twitter at scottdaily85, that's D-A-L-Y, and Matt's at mordinamail. 
Yep. Uh, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world that you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. We also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. If you like what we do here and want to help make sure that we keep doing more, please consider donating a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Reminder that this episode was recorded well in advance. So you'll, uh, so if you've become a patron in the last week or so, we will have to hit you up when Scott returns from his vacation. Yes. And I hope uh, future me is enjoying Scandinavia very much. Yes. Hi, hi, future Scott. Hi. Hi me. Um, and, uh, while you're over at Patreon, make sure you stop by Wildbo's page and toss some money there because he's the guy that makes this whole thing possible. And as always, if you can't, uh, if you can't spare any extra cash, we do completely understand. There are still tons of ways to help us out. Um, you can climb on top of a mountain and scream about We've Got Worm for everyone to hear. Mm-hmm. Or you can just tell your friends, whichever is easier. Um, if you are listening via iTunes and can take a quick second to rate and review us, that would, would be a huge help. Today's review comes from Lace Prison Queen, um, who gives us five stars and says... I'm not typically the kind of person who listens to a lot of podcasts, mainly for practical reasons related to annoying the hell out of my housemates. So I didn't pay much attention to the series when it first came out until there really started being a noticeable quantity of discussion surrounding it, maybe 10 episodes in or so. Finally decided to give it a shot, and I don't even remotely regret it. Despite the inconvenience of format, really nice to hear some other perspectives on Worm, especially ones that can examine and critique the stories in an interesting and meaningful way without falling victim to the excessive praise, endless hate dichotomy that you sometimes get. Worth checking out if you're into Worm, even if you're feeling uncertain about it, as I was. Uh, Thank you so much for these kind words. Um, I'm glad we don't come off as excessively praising. Uh, Sometimes, like I said, sometimes I do worry about that. But uh, might I suggest some headphones to solve the uh, annoying your housemates problem? Because you can can use those to listen to podcasts. Yeah. And and uh, you can also listen to us at uh, at a multiplier of our speaking speed, which makes us sound much faster. And that uh, lessens the annoyance. I don't know if we we said that before, but at one point five times speed, I sound way smarter so i recommend everyone listen to me at that speed yeah i mean i can't even listen to myself at normal speed we sound drunk at normal speed to me now i can't i can't i I can't handle it no it's it's embarrassing actually i I wish that we could prevent people from ever listening to us at normal speed (laughs) yeah uh so yes thanks for the kind words uh i especially consider it a compliment when uh, when the format is inconvenient, yet yet people still uh, find it valuable. Yeah, me too. Uh, so that's it for us this week. A quick reminder uh, for all the artists out there. Um, our our, our uh, first We've Got Worm Patreon-supported fan art contest is currently running. Click the link in the description for details and get creating. We'll see you all next week when we wrap up Arc 15. Bye-bye. Okay, and I'll, I'll count you down. Okay. Man, this feels weird. It's like a Sunday night. Yeah. Wait, you press press record or play? <laughs> oh, I pressed record. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm good at this job. <laughs> so good at it.